our jobs as healthcare providers is not just to treat, you know, we, we're here to prevent, we're here to kind of guide as well. And we need the tools to do that. And I think, you know, you might see your OBGYN more than you see any other, particularly your reproductive years, any other provider, right? Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. Hey, Shelly. Did it snow? The other night where you are? The weather app said it was flurrying, but it was not flurrying around my house for sure. Because <laughs> I went outside. I even looked. I was like, it says flurries in Pepperell. And I went outside. I was like, there's no flurries here. It's lies. So you were disappointed that there was no flurries? <laughs> I was a little disappointed. Yeah. It's November. Like, yeah. I expect there to be more wintry weather in New England. Wow. Be quiet because I hate the snow and it did snow. <laughs> did it really? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, did stuck a, it stuck a little bit to the road, but it did melt pretty quick. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm just not a winter person. I need to tell you, I think you're in the wrong part of the country, my dear. You know what? I will never li- leave my <laughs> Massachusetts bubble. Okay. <laughs> All right. We got universal health care. I mean, come on, pay family maternity leave. We've got reproductive rights. Reproductive rights. That was the next thing. I I am fine right here, sitting right here, dealing with my blizzards, yeah, <laughs> but having bodily, bodily autonomy. So I know. I think I said the same thing to my brother one time. Like, I, I don't think I'm ever leaving Massachusetts. <laughs> it's safe here, relatively right. speaking. For now. For now. You know. Yeah. Who knows? If we lose Elizabeth Warren. That could be. Well, what's the Handmaid's Tale takes place in Boston. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of expert people like Elizabeth yeah. Warren, this week we're talking with Dr. Williams, who is the author of Penelope and the Power of Positivity, which is a children's book. And she is also an OBGYN who struggles with breastfeeding after she had her baby. So she's here to talk to us about how just because, you know, you're a doctor and you're trained doesn't mean you know what you're doing when it comes to being a mom. Yeah, for sure. I've had a number of medical providers as my clients. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I wanted to talk about was, did you use a sound machine with Morgan? Yes, but only because we use white noise machines. Like I, I need... I need white noise Mm -hmm. and my husband needed white noise. And so when she was, you know, a baby and sleeping in our room, that's just kind of what we did. Now I don't necessarily use a white noise machine for her, but she has like a, a fan, like a type of filter in her room. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I never use white noise with my babies, but I use white noise for myself now. Yeah. I do find it interesting the number of people that like swear by the white noise machines. And it do- I'm not gonna lie, it does bother me a little bit the people that have the white noise mata- machines attached to like the car seats and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it bothers me. Like it's helping their baby, so what like why does it bother me? <laughs> Maybe it's because it might be a little too close or a little too loud. It's, it, it always seems really loud. Yeah. Yeah. So the American Academy of Pediatrics recently released a statement saying that white noise presents a risk to damage the baby's hearing. Interesting. But like any white noise or just like uh, kind of up close? Things? Like those clo- the machines that parents use. Gotcha. And so what they're recommending is don't use one, or if you need to use one, you should get one with a volume control and keep it below 50 to 60 decibels, probably 50 to be on the safe side. I also usually recommend to families not to put it like right next to the baby, right? Put it a little further away. Yeah. Technically, white noise machines are designed to be 
put in the noisiest section of the room or whatever that you're that you're in because mm-hmm. it's supposed to cover that noise. Mm. They're not really designed to be right next to you. That's not how they're designed to work. They're designed to be where is the noise? We're going to put it as close to the noise as possible. Right. Interesting. And I will link to that story in the I will link to that story in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, did they say what in the study presented a risk? Was it like hearing damage or something? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. And then is I just found it too. It says the maximum of 50 decibels. Mm. Yeah. Uh, let's do our question of the week. This week's question was submitted through Instagram. And the question is, does supply naturally taper off after baby reaches a certain age? No. <laughs> That's kind of, it's kind of a weird question. Supply tapers off for a number of reasons. And if they get to a certain age and you notice that your supply is lowering, let's say you get to like four months and you notice that maybe your supply was going down, I would look at any changes in the baby's feeding behavior at that point Mm -hmm. because your supply should still be pretty regular. Your supply should stay pretty regular once you get to around six to eight weeks. All the way through, like if you're breastfeeding through the first year, it should be pretty steady through there. It should really only start to decline once you, once baby is taking the breast less. Right. So usually when babies start solids, like around six months, it would very slowly, gradually tapers off as the baby takes in more and more solid foods. Yeah. And that's like the natural process of weaning. Yeah. So I will say if you notice, like, there's definitely times where your supply might dip outside of that. A lot of people going back to work, they might notice that their supply starts to go down. And honestly, going back to work is can be a, a real kink in the works, so to speak, as far as keeping your supply up. If like if you're one of those people that just makes enough, sometimes going back to work can kind of really put a hamper in that because just like the stress of going back to work and leaving your baby for the first time and trying to start a new routine and all that stuff can definitely impact your supply. And let's say you're one of those people that maybe doesn't respond to a pump very well. And now you're like eight hours away from your baby and you don't respond to a pump very well. That could definitely put impact your supply as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely your period coming back. A lot of parents will have a dip in their supply. When they yep. ovulate. Yep. And then just there's a little bit of natural down regulation too, around three weeks, six weeks, three months, six months that some people experience. I never, I don't feel like I ever experienced that down regulation. I did when I went back to work, but that was because I, I had no idea <laughs> about pumping. <laughs> I winged it. I winged everything. I didn't know anything helpful about pumping. I didn't know that flange sizes. I didn't know that the pump I had was garbage. I like I didn't know how to do anything to help that stress of being back to work and away from my baby. Because mm-hmm. honestly, like sometimes sometimes you've only just kind of gotten into your rhythm and figured it out by that three month mark. If you if you have like a full 12 weeks of mm-hmm. parental leave. Sometimes it takes you that long to like get into a rhythm and figure it out. And now like your whole rhythm is thrown off because now you're doing something else entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you pointed it out that you didn't really know. I had no clue what I was doing my first week. <laughs> no, and and it's like, I think I did everything on the list of things that we tell parents not to do. Like I got mastitis and what did I do? I called my mom. I'm like, can you come pick up the baby? I can't breastfeed right now. I'm sick. <laughs> yeah. I ended up with an abscess, Maria. Like, how? How? Yeah. I brought this like pump, and back then there was only one flange size. That's it. Right. I bought the the even flow breast pump. Oh no! It was like mostly plastic, and I don't like. I had, how did I maintain a supply on that pump? No clue. No clue. Yeah. 
I had the Lansano. I was pre Lansano. Oh my gosh. My kid's 19. My oldest is 19. Excuse me while I go cry. Yeah. yeah. I had the Lansano and it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And very gratefully was given a hand-me-down pop medalla from a friend of mine. And even though it was old, it was 10 years old when she gave it to me, it still worked better than the Lance now. Mm. That's back when Medela was making like super good quality. Yeah, before <laughs> they went, oh, went to go to the TV. Well, with Summer, my second I got, that's when Medela first like became really popular. So mm. I bought them and I was so proud. I was like, wow, this is what a <laughs> pump is supposed to feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, it's so strong. Oh, we went way off track with that. But I hope that answers your question. (laughs) And if you would like to submit a question for us to answer on the podcast, you can DM me at on Instagram at Shelly Taft IBCLZ. And next up, we'll be speaking with Dr. Williams. This week, we are speaking with Dr. Williams, who is an OBGYN and author of Penelope and the Power of Positivity, all about her experience breastfeeding her babies and how even though she had a, has a medical background, she was not prepared for what she experienced. Dr. Williams is the author of Penelope and the Power of Positivity, a new children's book for readers ages four through eight. The book tells the story of Penelope an inquisitive and resilient eight-year-old girl with big dreams that are threatened by fear and self-doubt. Readers follow Penelope on a journey of self-discovery as she uncovers the power of yet and the beauty of a growth mindset. Dr. Williams is an OBGYN, but works mainly in public health. However, her most important job is being a mom where she can be frequently found running often late from dance rehearsal to gymnastics practice. Dr. Williams has been breastfeeding for the past four years and has definitely learned a lot more about breastfeeding from being a mom than she ever did in medical school. Hi, Sean, and I thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. So my name is Sharnetta Williams. I am from New York originally, but I've been based in Atlanta for the last maybe eight or nine years now, actually. It's weird that it's gone by so fast. But yeah, I wear a lot of hats. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I have two kids, one, well, two-year-old now, two-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. And so my house is very loud and very messy pretty much all the time, (laughs) but it's a lot of fun. I've been married for the last nine years to my wonderful husband. Yeah, we have a a lovely family. I have to say I'm very blessed in that way. But I'm also an OBGYN by training. However, I left clinical medicine back in 2014 full-time. I was a full-time practicing just general OBGYN. And I left in 2014 to pursue a career in public health. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll have like a lot more time with my family and everything. And public health is it's just as wild, <laughs> uh, just in a different way. But I have returned to clinical medicine in some capacity. So I do. I see patients once or twice a month at a local clinic on a voluntary basis. And I just take care of low income women. And it's it's wonderful. It's It just feels like that's what I was like meant to do originally, but kind of got away from me. So I love that. But I work full-time in public health. And my newest hat is that I'm a, a new children's book author, which is just, you know, with all of my other responsibilities, it's crazy to think that that's what I'm doing now, but that's what I'm doing. So. Yay! And I yeah. love your book is Penelope and the Power of Positivity. Correct. Yeah. Lots of P's. Lots of P's. All about building confidence in kids. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And she has like, I love that you, her, are they supposed to be like her friends or her nemesis? I think you said it's like a fair. Well, they're her best friends. Right. Yeah. They're her best friends, but they're like little monsters and their names, but friendly monsters are not Mm -hmm. scary at all. And their names are fear and self-doubt. So can you imagine if those were your two best friends? I mean, yeah. <laughs> right? That's pretty much my story too. You know, honestly, when I started writing this book, you know, it's for kids, but I'm like, as I started, I've done a lot of like personal development things over the last year, and fear and self-doubt come up so much for so many of us, like as adults. And so I just thought kids need to hear this. Like kids need to understand how to overcome these sort of negative thoughts, you know, from a young age. Like we shouldn't have to reach 
adulthood to like understand how we can deal with this. So yeah, it comes up for all of us. What age group is your book for? Like how young are we talking? So I wrote it for a four to eight year old group. So I, I tried to take a complex concept, but try to break it down, you know, in the monsters, like these fun and colorful monsters for kids to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's around six years. I think that's what the research shows is around six years old is when kids do start to experience some self-doubt and some hits to their self-esteem. And then it really ramps up in like in school age children. This is like when they first start to like, ooh, have like possible negative feelings about their body image or stuff like that. Absolutely. I I mean, my daughter's only four and I'm starting to see things like you know, she'll say things like, oh, I can't do it. Like when tying her shoes or, you know, mm-hmm. she's learning how to tie her shoes. We're trying to teach her how to read and I can't do it. And I'm quick to remind her that you just can't do it yet. Like mm-hmm. always add that yet to it. You know, mm-hmm. you may not be able to do it right now, but you will with time and patience and practice. You can do it. And speaking of, you know, you can do it. You've got this. You're here to talk about your postpartum journey right. and breastfeeding your children as with your background as a doctor. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny you say that because I have a couple of, I have a few OBGYN colleagues who are also friends and a few of us are pregnant around the same time. And we all have this sort of like epiphany, like, okay, medical school did not prepare us for this. (laughs) Okay. You know, it's so many things, but in, you know, regarding breastfeeding in particular, like we get very little you know, formal training as, you know, residents and in med- as medical students on breastfeeding. And it's so important. It's so important. And I just feel like, you know, and I've, I'm talking about friends who went to different medical schools, to different residencies than I did. And we all feel the same. Like we really could have used more training on this. You know, women mm-hmm. look to their OBGYN providers first often for, you know, for advice on breastfeeding. And it's like, we have minimal training. I mean, I just have to be honest about that. And it wasn't until I had my own kids that I realized, wow, like there's a lot I need to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of families out there don't realize, even with pediatricians who maybe get an average of three hours a year on breastfeeding. And one of my good friends who's a pediatrician was like, well, it was more, the education was more around why people should breastfeed, like the benefits of breastfeeding, not really how to help them breastfeed. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, lots of training on why it's important and the benefits, but how to actually help someone who's struggling, very little, very little. I I think I may have had one lecture in medical school, literally, like maybe one. Yeah. I was thinking back to when I was in residency and we did have, there was one lactation consultant on staff, but we didn't get much time to spend with her, you know, like- Mm -hmm residency, especially like an OBGYN residency, it's a surgical residency. We have to build a case list. We're in surgery. We're delivering baby. There's a lot of things, but I feel like breastfeeding just wasn't prioritized, you know? And and honestly, I didn't, you know, and I feel like a lot of medical students and residents don't realize like how much this will come up. I'm I'm talking about specifically OBGYN residents, like this comes up, you know, Mm -hmm. your patients are going to reach out to you you're going to see them immediately postpartum at that six week visit, et cetera. And they have questions and they're struggling. And, you know, I just, you know, especially thinking about my return, I don't know if I will ever return full time to clinical medicine, but I will return it. You know, I will do more than what I'm doing now. And I've been looking at sort of different trainings I can take as a physician to help prepare me better. I do feel like coming back, I am already better. I will be a better mm-hmm. doctor just because I've had this lived experience now, but to have some formal training, I, I think will be just really beneficial to my future patients. Yeah, I think that would be wonderful. Do you mind if I ask you a question about the training you got in medical school? Sure. So one of the questions I have always wanted to ask, in OBGN, <laughs> do you receive training on screening for risk factors for low milk supply, like insufficient glandular tissue? Do, do you have any training on that? I received none. Okay. No. Yeah. No. Because one of the things that I come across in my practice is I'll be helping a family and the mom will have maybe very apparent IGT. And then I kind of have to, you know, talk to to them about that. And one of the questions that they always ask me is, why am I finding about this now? Why did no one tell me when I was growing up and going through puberty that things didn't look quite normal? I don't want to say normal, but you know, or why didn't my OB 
tell me that this might be a potential issue. And I would always say it's not not because they don't care. It's not right, because right. They, they don't want to support you. I just, I don't think they get that training. And it's so, it makes me really sad because if, if I think if OBs were trained to spot these issues, they could refer out, you know, they could, are you planning on breastfeeding? Yes. Okay. Well, you have hypothyroidism. So here's the name of a lactation consultant. I want you to connect with her before the baby is born, because if I can get to these moms before the baby is born, there's so much more I can do to help them and prepare them. Then when they're sitting in my office, three weeks postpartum, their baby is not gaining weight and they're right. crying and they're crying. Homes. And so in my dream of what America could look like, <laughs> yeah. that would be one of the things that I would have is that every OB would screen every one of their patients for those risk factors. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, our jobs as healthcare providers is not just to treat, you know, we're here to prevent, we're here to kind of guide as well. And we need the tools to do that. So Mm -hmm. I I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Right. And I think, you know, you know, the field of of obstetrics and gynecology, some women are using OBGYNs as their primary care provider, right? Like they're seeing them, you you might see your OBGYN more than you see any other, particularly your reproductive years, any other provider, right? And Mm -hmm. so it's just really important. And I don't think enough emphasis is placed on it in medical school and in residency. It's just, at least in the training that I received, and then like I said, I've talked to a few of my colleagues who've also, you know, gone through, <laughs> had babies and realized, wow, I'm not really prepared for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's, and, and again, it's not because no one wants to be helpful. I think it's just the system that you're trained into, like our healthcare system's broken. Absolutely. And there's a lot of things that need to be changed. Um, I agree. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So can you go over, like share what you'd like to share and feel comfortable sharing about what you saw or envisioned your postpartum experience to be going into your pregnancy and birth, knowing, you know, having the background that you have and how it really ended up being and feeling to you? Sure. So I would say, so just a little bit about my history. So I, I had lots of fibroids before I had ever had children. And so I had what's called a myomectomy, which is when you have your fibroids removed from your uterus. Because I've had, because I had so many fibroids and very large ones, I knew that when I got pregnant, I was going to have to have a cesarean. So, you know, for the listeners, some women can have fibroids removed and still um, be allowed to have a vaginal delivery. And the type of surgery that I had, you know, it was discussed that you know when you get pregnant in the future, you will need to have a cesarean. So I knew that going in. And part of that, because of the way that my uterus was cut, I had to have an earlier cesarean. So I had to deliver my babies before 38 weeks, so between 37 and 38 weeks. And so just for the listeners, 37 weeks is technically considered full term, but we know that some babies are not quite ready to come out at between 37 and 38 weeks. Ideally, babies will be delivered at 39 plus weeks. I mean, we've seen studies where some babies, you know, they're delivered at 37 weeks and they still end up in the NICU or the neonatal ICU. And I was one of those unfortunate cases. So with my first daughter, I delivered her at 37 weeks and three days via a scheduled cesarean. And she came out and she struggled a bit with her breathing. And so I got to see her in the operating room. And then they said she needed you know, to go to the nursery. And so I didn't see her for several hours after that. And I would say one thing that I did, and I would encourage all pregnant women or anyone who's thinking about becoming pregnant to do, is I, in my job, was I was very fortunate. My job offered lactation classes free of charge to all pregnant employees. So I took advantage of that. And that's when I started to become a lot more knowledgeable about what I knew and what I did not know about breastfeeding. So anyway, one of the things that we were taught in the class is about hand expression, which is something, again, I never even knew about (laughs) up until that point. And this is several years after medical school and and being in practice for a few years. right? And so I did not know much about hand expression. So I'm in the recovery room after having my cesarean. My baby is in the nursery because she's having some breathing difficulties. And I thought, well, I'm just sitting here why don't I just hand express the milk? Like I felt like I can do something. My husband was with the baby. And so to my surprise, I had colostrum. Like I, in my mind, I thought I'm going to be one of those women who just, it'll take like five or seven days, you know, for the colostrum to come in. But Mm -hmm. to my surprise, I had colostrum. It came out immediately. Right. And so 
I asked my nurse who was helping me, I said, you know, do you have like a container I can collect this in? And she, her response was, we don't do that here. No. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! Yeah, I was really, I was really surprised by this. That's like standard practice in most hospitals to collect that colostrum for the, right. I'm so sorry that that happened. It was shocking to me. It, it was, wow. it just blew my mind. Did you learn in the class that that's like, standard and, and good right. to do. So yeah. that was probably even more confusing for you because you were probably like, what do you mean you don't do that here? <laughs> right. I mean, I granted, I was in the recovery room, but I mean, like, this is a hospital that does a lot of, deliver. I mean, this is like a birthing hospital, you know? And so mm-hmm. I was really surprised by that. So I said, okay, I'm just going to ask when I get to my room. And when I got to my room again, it was like, they didn't say we don't do that here, but it was sort of like, they, I don't have anything, you know? And it was just, it was a mess. This is four years ago. Four years ago. almost. Well, yeah, so she'll this, be five in yeah. January. So this is not yeah. like... This is not know. like 20 years ago when people didn't Absolutely know. I was just could not believe it. And then and I was like, you know, you hear stories about women who just are trying desperately to get milk out and cannot. And here I am producing and have no place to put it. So it was really discouraging, but I was, you know, I didn't give up. So and eventually my daughter was brought in to me and she had an immediate setback. She stopped breathing and they had to rush her out. And so I did not, and she never came back. Essentially. She never came back to my room. She was in the NICU for the rest of the hospital stay. And I had to leave the hospital with her without her. So it was challenging. And so I think for me delivering at 37 weeks, I don't think she was quite <laughs> ready to, to come out. And then, you know, she was NPO or nothing by mouth for a while. So it was several days before I could actually get her to the breasts, you know, like several days. Did they give you a pump in the meantime? They did give me a pump and a lactation consultant came in. And so I did start, I started pumping immediately. Okay. At least that was good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was great. We had other issues though with that because, you know, like I said, I had to leave her in the hospital. And Mm -hmm. so, you know... I would come in in the mornings at like six in the morning. Like I'd wake up, take a shower and come right in. And sometimes I would get there and the nurse would tell me, oh, we just fed her already. And I'm like, mm. I have my- Can I say, I worked in the NICU for 10 years and that was something that I saw happen quite often where I'd see the moms downstairs on the postpartum floor and they would be like, well, I'm, I'm supposed to go up and try breastfeeding at 2 p.m. It's going to be our first time trying. I'm super excited. And I'd be like, okay, great. I'll meet you up there. I would go up at like 158 and the nurse would be given the baby a bottle. And I'd say, oh, I thought the mom was going to come up and breastfeed. And either the nurse would be like, well, I didn't hear anything about that. Or, well, they're taking too long to get up here and I need to feed this baby. Because it's all about right. that regimented schedule. Right. Which I, yeah. you know, I worked in a hospital for something. I get that. But right. it was just another, for me, it was just like another blow. Like, here we go. You know, I had to leave without my child and I mm-hmm. can't put her to the breast. Mm-hmm. I'm pumping and then I can't even give her the pump. You know, like it was just one thing after the other. And so, you know, she eventually came home. She was only there for about a week. But when she came home, she just wouldn't latch. And I think all of that just compounded. Like she was just, she was used to the bottle now mm-hmm. and she just wouldn't latch. And then she went on not to latch for the first six weeks of her life. <laughs> So I was an exclusive pumper and, you know, and I went through so many, you know, I had a lactation consultant that I was seeing and we went through like a supplemental nursing system, the, I forget what the nipple shield. I mean, Mm -hmm. we, we tried it all. I mean, and milk was going everywhere, but in her mouth, I mean, it was like my husband's holding tubes where it was just like, this is a lot. And so there were several days where I was like, I just, it's just not going to work, you know, like it's not going to work. But for some reason, I just kept trying. And it wasn't even like I tried every day or at every feed. Some days I would try once. Some mm-hmm. days I wouldn't try at all. But something about when she got to six weeks, I did a weighted feed and that was it. She just started nursing and she nursed for the next two years. <laughs> so, <laughs> she, was, she was like, just kidding. I'm going to nurse now. Right. I, and I was, it, it was shocking to me. Like the, I had gone to like a lactation group. I was going to like a weekly group and one of the consultants was like, let's just wear her. And, you know, and I was like, okay, but I know she's not going to do it. <laughs> and to my surprise, she took like three ounces. And I'm like, I didn't even realize I had that much milk. It's because yeah. you were at the group and you said that she wouldn't do it. 
Because babies love to make their parents look like liars, <laughs> right? I mean, kids <laughs> in general do. like to make their parents look like liars. Great. I see Good that point. in my office all the time where they come in, they're like, he won't latch or he'll latch, but he does terrible. And I'm like, okay, show me how you usually do things. And they always, they just latch right on. And the parents <laughs> always like, I swear this doesn't right. usually happen. I'm like, I totally believe you. And I bet when you go home, it's not going to happen again. Maybe <laughs> the first time you try, but at least we know it's possible. We can go right. from there. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, so I would just, anyone who's listening, I would just encourage you to keep trying. If it's something that you want to do mm-hmm. and some babies just take a while. And I would say, even with my second child, the same thing, I, I delivered him, I pushed it to like, we delivered at 37 and six. So I was like, as close as we could get to 38 weeks. And he had a totally different hospital course. He wasn't in the NICU, but he wouldn't latch either for the first six weeks of his life either. So um, it's, it's like <laughs> your kids are like your daughter probably whispered to him <laughs> right like this is how I want you to do it it was just bizarre I'm like here we go again and but at least for the second time around I was like well I'm gonna give it to six weeks because I yeah. know it took yeah so I'm sure yeah. it was a little less anxiety inducing too because you it wasn't your first rodeo right right yeah it was definitely yeah. better but I mean it was still you know I I will admit I do not enjoy pumping I just I do no. not I don't think I've met anyone who enjoys pumping. <laughs> right it's something right. we do have to if we want to you know get right. open a bottle yeah yeah it's it's painful to me but you know I so it was frustrating but I was like well we'll make it to six weeks. And if at that point he said he's still not doing it, then I'll just say, okay, you know, we tried. But again, at six weeks, he just started, he just started uh, latching and he turned two in October and he's still nursing. Mm-hmm. So I've been nursing off and on for the last four or five years, I think, you know, oh, like yeah. I only stopped nursing my daughter because I was, I mean, my son, yeah, my daughter, because I found out I was pregnant with my son and I was getting a lot of cramping. <laughs> that was sort of the, the signal, like, oh, maybe we should do a pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I've been nursing a lot for the last yeah four years. So she weaned during your pregnancy with your son. She did. I just told her one day. I said, "You know, you're a big girl now." And she said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> my first did that too when I was pregnant with my second, but I was not. I did not want to wean. She was the one who was. It must have started to revert back to classroom because she started making faces. Faces, yeah. The rest. And then one day I offered it and she's like, no, thank you. Like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? (laughs) I kept offering for like a couple of days and she's like, no. And I'm like, okay, I guess you're done. Yeah, it definitely was. I didn't think I was going to be as emotional as I was when I was like, you know, this is it. But it's, I don't know. I I definitely felt like, wow, like our connection is not going to be quite the same. So, and I'm already feeling like that with my son, as I'm thinking about weaning him now, I'm like, oh boy, are we ready? Especially because he's probably my last. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My son, who is my last, I think he was close to three before. And then I, I, don't, I only weaned him because I went to nursing school and I was like, I am too tired for this. I can't, this, yeah. <laughs> I can't breastfeed you and like study. I'd like to go back to a couple of things that you said that I really liked. I really like that you kind of attempted latching her when you had the bandwidth. Like you said that some days you didn't do it at all. Some days you just did it once a day. I love that. I, Cause that is something that I work with families a lot on. Like we want to work towards your feeding goals, but not at the expense of your mental health. And so if that means practicing latching only one to three times a day while we're working on whatever issues is causing the latching difficulty, great. If that means you don't breastfeed at night, you just pump and bottle feed and save practicing breastfeeding for when the sun is up, great. Do you feel that taking those steps back helped keep you going as long as you did before you found that success? Absolutely. And uh, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I... I found, you know, when you leave the hospital and they're like, oh, you need to pump eight times a day. And you're like, okay, if I'm pumping eight times a day, when am I sleeping? Like, I, (laughs) you know, especially when you're like, you know, you pump and then you have to walk. I mean, it was, yeah, it's a lot. You know, I think that immediate postpartum period is so overwhelming. At least it was for me. Mm -hmm. And both times, to be honest, a little less, you know, the second time, but still, I also had, I had a newborn and a two-year-old, you know, right. so it was, <laughs> you're yeah, outnumbered. Very <laughs> so I do. And that's something that I, you know, I feel strongly about, like a lot of us prepare for the baby 
Mm-hmm. You know, but we don't prepare for ourselves. Like we're not prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, we have baby showers and everyone brings baby gifts, but like women need to take care of themselves as well. And so absolutely, I found that, you know, I was trying at first to try to offer the breast before every feed, but sometimes the baby's like already too hungry, you know, and just too mm-hmm. disorganized to kind of try to latch. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you're just tired, right? Like you're tired. You're like, you know, especially for me who was struggling to get the baby to latch. I didn't always have the bandwidth to do, to deal with that struggle and then have to go and make a, you know, a bottle too, because I was mm-hmm. pumping. I didn't want to like make the bottle and then not use it, you know, like, right, <laughs> so it's, like yeah. it's a whole process. And so, and you have to do what works for you. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. I decided, you know, if I try today and it, and it works for me, fine. If I don't, that's also okay. Mm-hmm. That's also right. okay. You don't want to feel like you're you're fighting with your baby at the breast. Absolutely. And there right. were definitely times when I felt that way. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm trying to get them to the breast. And you're like, I'm just hungry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of times I'll encourage families like just latch them after they got the bottle or right. latch them in between feedings instead of offering the pacifier. See if they'll just suckle at the breast for comfort. And you don't have to sit there and worry how much are they getting? Are they getting enough? Because you bottle fed them already. So you know they got enough. Right. It's building those positive associations at the breast rather than just turning it into a battle. Absolutely. And, you know, there was something else that I read and it really, it just changed my mindset about things, I think. And I feel like a lot of us feel this way. Like you, when you're, you know, going to become a mom, you want to do the best you can, right? Like you want to give your baby the best start possible. And sometimes you can often feel like you're not enough. Like I just can't do this. My body can't do this. And so and I can't remember what article I read. I'm a part of like a Facebook group for like breastfeeding women. And oh, someone- I, I know that like, group. It's like, what is it called? I can't even remember because honestly, I it's haven't- breastfeeding. It has doc in the name or something like something. that. And there was like an article on it and then it was just talking about essentially like your body is enough. Like your, mm-hmm. your body can do this. Right? And that was half the battle for me, to be honest too. Like, even if I did get, you know, my child to latch a little bit, I would, oh, I would like, if I was leaving the house, I would like pack bottles because I'm like, obviously I'm not making enough. And it's like, but you are right. So half of the battle is just trusting that your body can do it. Mm-hmm. I, something about that article about, you know, just something in there, it just shifted my mindset and it just made me like understand that I am enough. And, and, you know, when I had my son, so the second time around, I already came into it, like knowing, like we can do this. Like We can do this. And so just that alone, I had a little less anxiety. And I think that also helps. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, and even for women who, for whatever reason, just can't get their baby to latch, you're still enough, right? Like you Mm -hmm. are enough. You are what your baby needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just having that understanding, going into it with that mindset, so helpful. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You brought up some really good points about that article sounds amazing because I do work with a lot of women who have they have IVF pregnancies. And so they're already, they're already at risk for low milk supply. A lot of them have low milk supply, but they've already gone into the pregnancy and the process of getting pregnant, feeling like their body is, is broken, quote unquote broken and has let them down because they couldn't get pregnant naturally or, or whatnot. So then they go through that process and then they give birth and their body's not making enough milk and they blame it all on themselves. If their baby's not latching, they blame it all on themselves because they work so hard to get pregnant and have this baby. Right. And so like changing the perspective to even if you're not making a full milk supply, you're making your full milk supply. And that's enough. There is no minimum of amount of breast milk that is needed for a baby to benefit from it. So I love that. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at social media, something I noticed, like there's, you know, some women are overproducers. And they'll like post like a freezer full of milk. Like I've never, that's never been me. Right. And so that's something also I have to say, like that too is not the norm. Like that is not the average. And also, you know, I was always enough. I always produced enough just like for the next day. And that's Mm -hmm. fine. Right. Like you don't need (laughs) a freezer full. And I still have one bag left in my freezer of milk I pumped. And I never had like, I, you know, so it's okay. Like, I just feel like we need to like take some of the pressure off of ourselves. Mm -hmm. It is okay. Mm -hmm. And for the woman who does produce like a ton of milk, kudos to you, but that's just not everyone. 
Right. And that's something I'm constantly have to remind of the families I work with because they go in with the expectation they're going to be pumping eight ounces because that's what they see on Instagram. Right. And they see the moms who are like, I just had to buy another deep freezer to store more milk. <laughs> right. And they have just like, that's not normal. That is <laughs> that is the exception rather than the rule. And, what and we all know that comes with them. some other issues too, right? Like you can, <laughs> yeah. you can see issues there too. So yeah. 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 <laughs> My other question that I had is you mentioned that you took a breastfeeding class. And you're absolutely right. They, all the focus is always on the birth, right? Like having the baby. 26% of women take a childbirth class, but only less than 16% take a breastfeeding class. And I think oh. part of that is that as you're going into child the childbirthing year, you're kind of taught like breastfeeding is natural. And therefore you're given the impression that it just happens naturally. <laughs> and as you know, and I know, that is that is not the case. <laughs> For a lot of women, for some women, it does happen. That yes. Way. For a lot of us, it does. They don't see, I don't see them because no one comes to see me. <laughs> they don't come to see you. <laughs> so sometimes <laughs> I have to remind myself that there are a lot of women out there that can just breastfeed with no problems. At what point, because you mentioned that when you went into the breastfeeding class, that's when you really started to know how much you didn't know. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what was your mindset going into the class? Were you outright like, oh, I'm a doctor? I'll just take this to humor, whatever, <laughs> the, the breastfeeding gods or whatever. <laughs> but I but I know everything already. Or were, were you going in like, I wonder what I'm going to learn that I didn't learn? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I have adopted this sort of like learner's mindset a long time ago. Like I, there's very few situations I go into where I feel like, oh, I know everything. <laughs> like, that's just not me. I feel like there's something to learn all the time, right? And if you stop learning, then like, what is the point? So I went into it saying, I need to figure out what I <laughs> like how to do this. And honestly, even at the time that I completed my residency training, I knew, I knew that we did not <laughs> get enough training. You know, there's certain topics that I, you know, and I can think back to, you know, and breastfeeding is one of them, <laughs> lactation. I, all I knew was like, you know, because what we dealt with mostly, you know, rounding on the postpartum ward was like women who didn't want to breastfeed. And so it was sort of like, what can I do to stop the milk? Okay, wear a tight fitting bra or put some ice there or get some cabbage leaf. You know, like that was like our spiel. But that was it. I didn't, that's like really the extent of it. So I went into the class with an open mind and trying to figure out like, okay, what am I going to do? But still going in, I just assumed, and again, this is, you know, mindset is half the battle. I just assumed that I was going to have issues with like milk production. I don't know why. I just thought that's going to be my issue. I never thought I was going to have milk and and a baby who wouldn't, wouldn't mm-hmm. latch. So yeah, I just, yeah. So I knew going in, like I'm going in to learn, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I went into the class. What do you think was the most important thing that you came out of that class with? That was the most helpful. I think the most helpful thing that I learned from the class was I made a, I had like someone's number, someone's phone number to call. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it's huge. Like when you're, when it's 3am and your baby is crying and you're trying to get that baby to latch, like you want to know that in the morning I can call somebody and I know who I'm going to call, right? I don't have Mm -hmm. to start from scratch. So I would encourage anyone who's listening, who's pregnant, to try to connect with a lactation consultant before you deliver. And you don't know when that will be, right? So like, you know, pregnancy is so unpredictable. So yeah, as as soon as you can, try to connect with someone, you know, see if, you know, you vibe with them, you like their approach. There's, you know, a million different ways to do one thing, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone does something different. And so just having a number that I could call, like I call, why didn't you call her? But I texted the lactation consultant while I was in the hospital Mm -hmm. and she responded. (laughs) So, so, and for the second time around the same thing, I was like, okay, the, the, the woman I saw before she had retired, and so I found another one and I knew like, if I have problems or when I have problems, I am calling this person. Mm-hmm. I think that's half the battle, right? We don't have to know it all, but we should know who we're going to go to yes. or have a resource, yes. right? I love that. So, yeah. uh, that's half the battle. So mm-hmm. I think I would encourage anyone who's pregnant, please. You don't know if you're going to have lactation issues. Just mm-hmm. connect with someone, have, just have someone in, in mind who you're going to call. Right. And, and you also may not be able to get in right away. So you want to start building that rapport, right? Like right. I knew that, you know, I knew like I could text her 
in the middle of the night and she would respond. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I knew that going in. And so when I was in the hospital and I realized, wow, doesn't seem like I'm going to be latching at all on here. I texted her, you know, and so, and just having that as a read, that made me feel much more comfortable about things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't know if, if this is the same in your area, but when I started my practice almost 10 years ago, I hardly ever had prenatal clients. And now I have quite a few. And so I think the word is getting out about the importance of connecting with someone prenatally, but it's it just makes it so much easier. If someone comes and sees me prenatally, I know their entire health history. I know their goals. I know their previous experiences with breastfeeding, if they have any. And then, like you said, they could be in the hospital because the hospitals in my area are extremely short staffed with lactation right now. So a lot of my clients are going in and giving birth and there's no lactation on staff. And so because they're a prenatal client, they can text me and I already know like their goals and their health history. I can make recommendations based on that. And then when they get home, they have someone to help them. Right. And I just, like you said, you're not Googling at 2 a.m. while your nipples are bleeding and your baby's screaming at you. (laughs) And I get a lot of 2 a.m. bookings. Every time I wake (laughs) up and I see that someone booked an appointment at 2 a.m., I'm like, oh, that was a rough night for this family. That was a rough night, right. And then my prenatal clients also are prioritized when it comes to my schedule. Right, right. Tell them, you know, tell me when you go into the hospital, tell me as soon as you get a discharge date so that I can make sure that I have a spot on my calendar available for when you go home. And they take priority because they are a prenatal client. So I 100% agree with you, like connecting with, even if it's just a support group, even if you don't even, have the yeah. resources to work with lactation or there's no IBCLCs around you, because there are a lot of parts in our country where there is a desert right. of lactation care. Go to a Leche League meeting, go to a baby cafe, even before you had your baby and just sit and observe how they're holding their babies, observe how they're latching their babies, listen to the questions they're asking. I was going to say, listening to these questions. Yeah. Yeah. Very helpful. Yeah. And I'll give you, you know, I was just thinking about like when I had my son, so I had gestational diabetes for both of my pregnancies. Mm. And so, you know, babies who are born to mothers with gestational diabetes, something that can happen after delivery is that their blood sugars can drop very low. And that's another reason that your baby could end up in the NICU. And again, away from you, away from that, you know, skin to skin. And that's what you want those first few hours and days. You can start to build that bond and, and latch the baby. And so, you know, the second time around, I told my lactation consultant, this is my history. And she's like, look, go on Amazon and get these little tubes, (laughs) collect your colostrum. And, you know, because, you know, when you go in the hospital, the second time around, they had, you know, a little container, but colostrum is thick and it comes out in these little drops. So by the time it gets down to the container, there's nothing, right? It's all collected on the side. Mm -hmm. And so she told me to go get these little tubes and these tubes collected it so well. Even the nurse was like, where did you get that? How did you know? I'm like, my lactation consultant. Mm -hmm. And here I am. I'm collecting the colostrum and giving it to him. You know, just little things like that. Yeah. I I give all my prenatal clients like a big handful of those. (laughs) I love (laughs) those too. That's how I wrote about it. Yeah. Yeah. Because they do not have those in the hospital. You will not get Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) Right. Or sometimes they do, but it just takes forever to get it to you. And I came prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did your experience change the way that you work with your patients? Well, so right now, what I'm doing, I'm only doing uh, GYNs, so you know, gotcha. non-pregnant patients. I do like consults and biopsies and things like that. But I am seriously, seriously thinking about <laughs> going back to delivering because I do miss it a lot. And I know like I am going to be a different doctor. I'm going to be a better doctor. Like a friend of mine who's also an OBGYN, we were talking about like, you know, women coming in and saying, I have round ligament pain. You're like, oh yeah, it's normal. It's like, it's normal. But have you felt that? <laughs> Have you right. experienced that? I experienced that firsthand. I had lightning crotch, you know, like I know how this feels. Lightning crotch. <laughs> <laughs> I had that. So now, like when I was practicing before, I had never been pregnant. I had all I knew about these symptoms for was what my patients told me and what I read mm-hmm. in books. There's mm-hmm. nothing like lived experience. Mm-hmm. I will treat that so differently now, you know, like it's just a I will be a better doctor for sure. For sure. I think pediatricians have a similar epiphany too after Absolutely. having their own kids. And I do have quite a few pediatricians who are clients. And it's it's kind of funny the questions they ask me because like, well, 
What do you say when your family is asking you these questions? But you know, when you're postpartum, it's your baby. You're right. you're sleep deprived. It is totally not the same thing. It's not. It's just not. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear from them after and they're like, it has completely changed the way that I interact with my families when they come in with concerns about their baby or concerns about breastfeeding. And there's also a difference between normal and common, right? Right. A lot of like, oh, that's normal. Is it really normal? Or are we just seeing it so much that we think it's like in postpartum incontinence, right? Everyone's like, oh, that's, that's normal. You just had a baby. It's not really normal. It's just common. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Just like round ligament pain. I mean, you know why, but like there are things you can do, right? Like Mm -hmm. I feel like in the past it was sort of like, well, that's normal. It'll go away. And it's like, <laughs> it doesn't always go away, <laughs> you know. Like, and it's very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's. I will definitely take a different approach. I will. I feel like now that I have, you know, I'm a breastfeeding person. You know, I will feel more comfortable talking about breastfeeding to my patients. And something else that I didn't think I would still be dealing with, like I just saw my lactation consultant earlier this year. You know, I've been breastfeeding my son for almost two years. I got a nipple bleb. It's like, nobody talks about that. Mm-hmm. right? I did yeah. not know that, you know, like the longer you breastfeed and the older your child gets, the milk gets thicker and you're more prone to these blebs. I never heard, the, I never heard about a bleb in medical school or residency. So I'm still learning things now. Yeah. And I think the other thing is older kids don't really care about latching properly. <laughs> like once, once the babies hit like six months, it's like anything goes. This is the way they're going to latch and that's how they're going to latch. And most of the time you're not in pain because you're just so used to it. But, right. Yeah. But if I have seen an older baby or toddler, it's like, yeah, that's a crappy latch, but also they're a toddler. So they're just, they're going to have a crappy <laughs> And then right. they see, they hear a noise and they turn their head and, and they're they very the nipple distracted. with you. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So interesting breastfeeding at that age. It is. It really is. But yeah, it's like, I would not even, I don't even know if I would be able to identify it. You know, mm. if I had a patient come in, because they're very painful, right? Like this yeah. little thing, it's extremely painful. Now it's like, oh, yeah, I know. Like I had one. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. You know, and it's because I have that experience. I've, you know, I've worked with a lactation consultant who immediately knew. I don't right. know if OBGYNs would immediately know what that is. I right. don't know. I feel like the people are just like, well, you must have thrush. Like thrush is a very, let's just throw nice statin at you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> See if that helps. But so not, not only like being able to identify and diagnose it, but are they up to date on the latest research and protocols and how to, how to treat it? Because those protocols are changing all the time. Right, right. Like they recently updated the mastitis protocol and I still hear a lot of OBs in my area giving the, the old advice to parents when they get mastitis and stuff through no fault of their own. I mean, also doctors are busy, you know, you have to see clients like a certain number of patients in order to like run your practice. And that was actually my next question for you. Cause I know that you're, you're, if you do start doing births again, and you have these goals of, you know, being more breastfeeding supported, maybe screening them for IGT and whatnot. Do you think the way our healthcare system is set up is going to impede those goals or make it harder in terms of like time constraints, things like that? Absolutely. I mean, that that was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving clinical medicine. You know, I I went into this because I wanted to help take, I wanted to take care of women, right? And you know, you do, when you have 15 minutes to see a patient and that patient comes in and they're visibly upset, it's like, are you going to really say, oh, 15 minutes and you're done. I'm not going to address the fact that, you know, like things happen. You're taking care of people, not machines, right? Like there's a human component. You have to show humanity. And so it it will be a challenge. I mean, at the clinic that I work at now, I do think that's possible, but yeah, I, I think it's hard in most places. I, I really do. I mean, if you have 15 minutes to see a patient, it's hard to capture everything. And there are certain other things that you have to cover, right? You have right. to check some boxes and lactation consulting, or even really talking about, it's more like, are you planning on breastfeeding? Oh, you should breastfeed. You know, like it's yeah. more than that. It's more, <laughs> you know, so it will be a challenge. It will be a challenge. Yeah, totally agree. And I know there's a lot, at least in my area, there's a lot of reshaping of what practices look like, like more so with pediatric practices than anything, but we have like a lot of concierge 
practices popping up where they don't take insurance, but families pay a monthly fee that covers everything. And they they will spend an hour with right. the family. They will go to their home for their the first six weeks of pediatrician visits. And we're seeing a lot more of that because providers are sick of it. Like you, sick of all these time constraints and feeling like they're not helping anybody. Right. Which is great. But also the only problem with that is that's only accessible to certain populations. Certain people. Right, right. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why too, after I, I worked in the hospital for 10 years and I left because it was like, I'd, I'd walk in and it's like, okay, you have to see these 38 dyads and you have six hours to do it. I didn't feel like I was helping anyone. I felt like if anything, I was just running into the room, latching the baby to the breast, and then I'd have to leave. You'd have to leave. Yeah. And I couldn't stay and answer their questions. I couldn't get to know them. I couldn't, you know, versus in private practice. I block off two hours to spend with each family. I get to know them. I get to know their goals. I, I meet grandma. I meet the, and it, it is so much more fulfilling to me than running around like a chicken with my head cut off from hospital room to hospital room, basically feeling like I'm just trying to put out fires, you know? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned that term because when I was in residency in my head, I'd be like, let me just go put out the fire. I would say that like, you know, like I want to make sure everyone is safe, you know, but like being able to, I don't know, to really care for people, you know, like in a sort of like a taking care of people more holistically, it was challenging. I found that really challenging. And I feel like a lot of us, you know, we, that's why we went into medicine. We want to do that, but it's just, it's hard to operate in that way in the current system. Yeah. 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 Our system is so broken. No. So Anything else you would want families who are listening to know, like one thing that you could tell them as they prepare for their pregnancy or for their birth? I think my biggest message would be, again, like, you know, we do so much to prepare for the baby and we should, right? But like, I always, I feel like every time a child is born, a mother is also born. There's a mother where there was not a mother. And if you were previously a mother, you are a different mother now because you now have another child. And we do need to put more emphasis and focus on the mom. You know, like I saw something somewhere, it was like something like, you know, we all say it takes a village to raise a child, but it takes a village to support a mother as well, right? Like we need, mothers need support. And I just feel like as a society, we could do more to honor mothers. We could do more to honor that transition. Mm -hmm. It's a huge transition and, and it doesn't end at six weeks when the baby's six weeks, you know, right. like it doesn't end. And even when the mother has to go back to work, if she works outside of the home, you know, things are still changing. She's not the same person. And so really try to honor that within ourselves. And that hopefully as a society, we'll do more to honor women, you know, I who are making that. that transition and people who are making that transition, I should say. Right. I love that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause one of my, I remember with my first, went to baby. That's my first is 19. So babies are us was still. (laughs) Yeah. And and they gave us the 18 page checklist for our baby registry. And we walked around and we, you know, thought we needed all these products and, you know, 80% of them we didn't use, but you know what I could have used? I could have used a meal train. I could have used a doula. I could have used a gift certificate for a lactation consultant. I'm, and I was broke when I had my first baby. I couldn't (laughs) afford um, a lactation consultant, but that's what we should be focusing on. Not the stuff on the pretty baby shower, which is great. Like that stuff's good too. It is, it is, yeah. But setting up that meal train, paying for meals to be delivered, paying for even a dog walker. They just come and walk the family dog. That is a thousand times, a gift that's going to be appreciated a thousand times more than the latest pacifier. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I was in Target and I was just like strolling. And I was thinking how like when I had my first child, I got this car seat and it was really expensive and I loved it because it had this like reclining feature. And then I'm like, my child did not like sleeping in that car seat. (laughs) And so it was just like, you didn't need that, you know, so Mm -hmm. you don't know, you know, like you don't know what, you know, sort of temperament your baby's going to have. But, you know, I think we could do more like we know ourselves. We may not have been through that transition, but, you know, you know, you can kind of get a sense like I'm going to need help with all the other things so I can focus on baby. Like that's what we should do more of. And maybe some time for ourselves too, right? You know, like Mm -hmm. having some time away. So 
yeah, I think we could do more to focus on the mother, the mom, or, you know, the person who's making that transition. Yeah. Beautifully said. Where can parents connect with you? Where can they find you? Where can they find out about your book? Has your book been released? Yes, it is. It is available on Amazon, but I am building my, well, my website is, you can find it on Google. It's www.pictureperfectreads.com. And I will have a link in the next few days to purchase books uh, directly from me, but you can find me on, on Instagram at pictureperfectreads as well. And I would love to have you guys come and join me there and meet my kids a little bit and learn more about me. So And I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can find them. And I really appreciate you coming here and telling your story because I think it's something that a lot of parents need to hear because you go in thinking, okay, my OB and my pediatrician are the experts and I can ask them all my infant feeding questions and that's not necessarily (laughs) true through no fault of the provider, just of the system that they were trained in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jonana. I really enjoyed this. Oh, thanks. I did too. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.